Welcome to Necessary Illusions. I am your host, MC Squared. On this episode of the podcast, I have Matthew Pavarnik, Dr. Matt, who got his PhD in physics from the University of California, Irvine, where he focused on building replicas of small biological channels and detecting small particles like viruses. He is currently an associate professor at a faith-based institution. There he teaches physics, biostatistics, and classes on science and the faith dynamic while he explores questions of the origin and history of life on Earth, as well as the origins of humanity, the origin and history of the universe itself, which all occasionally get him into trouble. Thank you for listening. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. He's got his PhD in physics from UC Irvine, and he now teaches physics at Regent University. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's, uh, yeah, let's get right into it. We had a little pre-call discussion. Um, I kind of want to talk about this first. I, I do want to get into, you know, maybe your influence or your drive to get into physics and maybe your early academic history. But um, what's it like teaching physics and cosmology and theories about the universe at a faith-based university? Well, it was an interesting journey. I think probably when I first um, when I first started there, I had a very different perspective than I do now, and I think the way I used to view things helped me get the job in the first place. And now I've I've kind of run into, I would say, um, I kind of jumped off the deep end, so to speak. And let me elaborate on that a little bit. So when I first got there, uh, I lost you. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I just, what the heck am I saying? What, what was your question again? <laughs> What's it? It's all good, man. What's it like teaching, you know, physics, um, cosmology, um, theories about the universe at a faith-based university, uh, and how might you know religion influence, uh, you know, the way that you you teach that type of subject matter? Uh, we had talked a little bit on the pre-call that you have a lot of students coming in to university with some very, um, you know, religious-influenced beliefs, including creationism. And um, I'm sure a radical evangelicalism. So um, how does that all what's what's it like, you know, being a professor of physics and at a faith based university where sometimes these 
um, questions about life and origin and the universe um, can conflict or can butt heads or whatever with uh, religious ideology. I think the first thing I would say is that it's a lot of fun. It was rather surprising for me uh, coming to teach here because it's a very different experience than when I was going and getting my uh, bachelor's and then PhD in physics. Because a PhD in physics, for example, I took a class in astrophysics, right? And there basically that meant that I was sitting around solving equations of general relativity or at least trying to because they're really complicated. But that's pretty much that. I really didn't even know the main, like, what what do we even know about the universe like what what is the what is the like makeup of chemical elements in the universe what's the ratio of hydrogen to helium and how do we explain that and there are all sorts of interesting things about the universe that i had no idea really existed uh and and somehow that just that just kind of i think in a lot of places you miss over that and there's a lot of rich history as well uh that i think is worth uh diving into for example why are the planets where they are? Well, if you go back a few hundred years, you know, you had Johannes Kepler, and his idea was that, well, there are these geometric solids that God could use to construct the the universe, and he had a sphere and then a, like a tetrahedron and then another sphere outside of that, and and it's really interesting to see the development of human thought, and I, I feel like that has lessons for us today. So those are some of the things that I really enjoy about it, that I explore, and I try to give students... Because one of the things, if you're going to, if you're going to try to teach, let's say I'm going to teach cosmology, the consensus theory in cosmology, uh, there are some additions to it. Like, for example, if you were to really look it up, probably, I think someone would say the consensus is a lambda CDM, which stands for lambda is represent dark energy and cdm cold dark matter so that's kind of the consensus model in cosmology but you know at the core of that is the big bang theory now one of the things that's not going to work is if you have a bunch of people who've been told their well i'm sorry but the big bang theory contradicts what we know to be true from the bible that's really not going to work so well. I can't come in there and say, okay, well, here's the Big Bang Theory. Here are a few things that go into into this model, and uh, there you go. Uh, if I want them to seriously engage with this idea and maybe maybe think about, you know, if they, I, I think most of them want to, you know, believe strongly that God created the universe. Well, maybe they could think of it in sort of a, a grander and broader perspective than just he kind of snapped his fingers like a magician, you know, a few thousand years ago. So I, I try to I try to give them a, a background and kind of tell the story of how did we get uh, to where we are today. You have certainly interesting examples of people interacting with Aristotle's model of cosmology. Before that, most people thought the earth was flat. So then we have Aristotle's model, and then Ptolemy added a little bit to that. And then you have the, the Copernican model, and certainly some interesting interactions with the uh, with people of faith at that time, um, uh, like with Galileo and whatnot, is probably the most famous example. Um, and then today, you know, you have the Big Bang model proposed by a, a Belgian priest uh, in its kind of original conception. So, I mean, you have a lot of really, I think, rich interaction there that I think if I if if we come at it from that perspective, that leads to a much more fruitful discussion overall. 
And I think a lot of people haven't really seen the evidence that needs explaining. So I, you know, I, I have done this a number of times where I just write out, you know, five different observations about the universe. I'm like, there's a single unifying idea that explains all of these. And that's the Big Bang Theory. You can replace it. If you replace it, you'll probably get a Nobel Prize. Um, and But the thing is, is if you want to replace it, you have to explain all of these things and then some. And so I think, I think that kind of leaves it open as A, an invitation, but also B, um, it helps students a lot um, a lot more. So th those are some of the examples of things that I would have never even – Potter approached. Uh, sometimes I, I do, you know, miss, miss the times of just like writing a few of Maxwell's equations on the board and no, no one's gonna, you know, send you to the dean's office or, you know, try to get you fired because you wrote Maxwell's equations on the board. So anyway, so sometimes I do, I do wish that I was somewhere else and teaching not such controversial topics to people who, uh, you know, have essentially been taught their entire lives that they're wrong, like with the Big Bang Theory. But um, at the end of the day, it's a really fun and interesting sort of endeavor that I found myself in. So um, a lot, a lot there. I really want to get to it. Um, I've read a lot of Noam Chomsky. He's my favorite philosopher, and kind of what he says about religion is religion was kind of the first science that we had. It was kind of invented. Um, as a way to explain the universe, the cosmos, you know, the reason for why we are here. So, I, you know, I think if you look at early religion, maybe even back to like um, ancient Greece and um, Apollo and Zeus and all these different gods and stuff, I think that, um, you know, religion um, was kind of, you know, your first system of explaining um, the universe and, and this, the, so many questions that we still have today. Obviously, it doesn't sound like we've gotten too far, but we've obviously made some some big discoveries as, as a species um, and, and uh, over the thousands of years of human history and hundreds of thousands of years, I guess, of, um, uh, you know, I guess evolution or whatever, if you want to go that route. But, um, yeah, I think um, – and I think it used to be philosophy used to be um, there used to be like it used to be, I guess, like the same kind of word, like philosophy, uh, science meant the same kind of thing. You could have like practical philosophy. That's like kind of your humanities. And then you can have natural philosophy. That's the study of you know science, biology, the universe, physics, all that kind of stuff. Or maybe as some of the ancients called it metaphysics. But um yeah, you had mentioned this kind of stuff, so I kind of want to – let's just throw some words out there. Dogma, um, faith, and then what about, like, knowledge? What is knowledge? Like, knowledge, uh, you said, like, something about proven – you know, something has to be, like, proven or, um, you know, and even, like, certainty. I've done some philosoph uh, philosophizing or some philosophical inquiry, uh, and I think it kind of goes back to the father of um, – I guess is what he's called the father of modern philosophy, uh, Rene Descartes. Um, and uh, I, what is it? The, uh, the incognito or whatever, like, you know, I think therefore I am or something along those lines. Um, but I think when you really kind of look into it um, and I liked his, like when he went into his, like uh, we could all be um, like, God could be a trickster, you know, like the universe could have been invented yesterday and everything like, 
we think was planted. Like, oh no, you know, the the universe was just invented. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a tricky god. I just, you know, I made it seem like you know you've been around for 36 years, but actually just created it yesterday with a snap of a finger. And um, you know, and I think you can do some philosophizing. Um, like the um, the brain in a vat experiment. Like right now, you're thinking you're having having a conversation on um, you know this platform that we're on, but I could just be a sneaky scientist putting some chemicals in your brain, making them interact, and making it seem like you know we're having this kind of conversation. So that's why I really like you know Descartes and I guess the modern philosoph- philosophical approach in the Enlightenment era, um, and I think kind of the the, the I guess the foundations of philosophy kind of got started in ancient Greece, and we had talked about that a couple weeks ago on a call. But let's what, what what do these words mean to you? Like dogma, faith, knowledge, proven certainty, and I, I, at the core of this is what are the limitations to human knowledge? Well, I think <laughs> uh, you've asked a challenging question. I think uh, one of the one of the things I want to touch upon just briefly uh, before hopping into a few of those is this idea that I feel like has really taken hold of me, and that's probably from a scientific perspective, which has to do with ideas that are useful for understanding more of reality. So it could be the physical world or whatnot. Um, some examples that are um, that are not particularly useful today, for example, could be um, the idea that, like, if you're trying to explain where did the universe come from, while I might ultimately believe in the ultimate sense that the beginning of physical reality is god i don't think that's a useful idea for explaining things about our universe so or for or where it came from so i i don't think that it it gives us any additional information uh that can be used to make new predictions or discover new things so i while i i i can and i and i try to empathize with people of of faith as well who uh think that you know say say for example um what about this unexplained thing like we don't have a scientific consensus for how did life begin on earth um i i get uh kind of irritated whenever people of faith uh just say well god did it uh that's not interesting to me i don't think it adds anything to the conversation while i might personally believe that god did it in some kind of way i don't think that that teaches us anything or is very interesting sort of explanation for things i think it's intellectually lazy but at the same time when i look at some people historically trying to explain things i mentioned um i think we uh let's see with Copernicus uh, got gotten us in trouble you had mentioned uh, Kepler's well, model of the universe, yeah, so the and Kepler's then Galileo model. is a famous example. So take take, uh, take Kepler for example. He worked. He believed that uh, God constructed the solar system, and so he was trying to explain why it is that the planets are where they are. Now, if he really wanted to explain where the planets are, where they 
are, uh, he would have needed to know some rather complex physics um, and also be able to do computer simulations over billions of years. Like, I mean, he, so he really had no chance to explain it. So he believed that God put the you know, the planets in some kind of uh, structure. Uh, like, he believed that they were put there by based upon these eternal principles in the mind of God. So he came up with these geometric solids, and it was kind of, it was pretty clever how he tried to put this solid inside of that one, so he put a cube inside of a sphere, and so on and so forth. Um, but his model turned out to not really be useful in explaining or predicting anything, because there is a question that um that everyone wondered which was why is there such a big spacing between mars and jupiter so you know you think of the planets you have mercury venus earth mars gap jupiter saturn uh and we didn't know too many planets beyond that at that point in time um so why was there such a big gap well uh you know Kepler's answer was because God put a tetrahedron outside of the sphere of Earth or whatever, something like that. I don't remember the exact geometric solids he chose. Um, uh, it turns out that that was not a useful explanation for explaining things. So there was another approach. Uh, there was this uh, tidious bode law, and it's really more of a rule now, but basically they figured there's this – you can fit a mathematical function to the spacing of the planets. Um and they predict that there should be a planet in between Mars and Jupiter based upon this mathematical rule. And it turns out that um, uh, there was a planet that started to form, but of course, that's just the main asteroid. It was ripped apart by the gravity of Jupiter. And so, um, so it's kind of a more interesting sort of explanation, but uh, – and it, and it helped predict the planet uh, – let's see, what's, what's outside of Saturn? Is that – Neptune or Uranus? What's next? I, it's embarrassing you don't know that with the PhD in physics, but it's, yeah, you it's know, 50, 50. no, it's fifty-fifty. I don't have them. I don't have them memorized. Anyways, yeah. So, so, so uh, they the the next planet matched fairly well, but the one after that failed miserably. So, so my point is, you know, that that teaches me something about what it means to uh, like, like I suppose have faith. Or, um, or it kind of gives me pause on having too much of a dogmatic stance on certain ideas because, you know, I could dogmatically stand there and say, well, the spacing of the planet is because God made it that way or he had these eternal principles in his mind and they're in the spacing that they are for the best possible reason, you know, and that – but uh, yeah, I think like dare to be puzzled. I think like yeah. Newton and Galileo, and that's kind of what I wrote down as you were talking here. Trailblazers. A couple times you said um, the scientific consensus, you know, and of course um, Copernicus, Galileo. I don't know as much about Kepler, uh, but Galileo, Copernicus, um, Newton for sure were trailbla trailblazers. I have read some stuff on. Um, Oh, I forget the. He's a philosopher. It's got his book right over here. Uh, who, who's the guy that invented? Um, uh, um, what's the, calculus at the same time as Newton? The great uh, philosopher. Leibniz. Yeah, Leibniz. But yeah, these, these are all kind of um, you know 
uh, I think there's, I'm sure there, there's, there's a lot of contemporaries at the time, but some of these big names in, in science, Einstein, I love studying Einstein. Uh, I think a lot of his, uh, a lot of his theories are still so sophisticated that I even have you know trouble wrapping my head around, especially as someone is a, is a novice enthusiast of, of science, but how does like the, so I'm sure there's tons of stuff right now that you and I both believe that will be, you know, proven, you know, I, I don't even like to sometimes use these words like certainty or proven, but any field, especially in science, you know, changes a lot over a hundred years or 200 years, certainly, right. Or there wouldn't be much of a field there. And that's kind of what science does is, is keep you honest. Like you could have a theory of, um, you know, uh, I don't know, like any of the humanities, you know, theory of, of education, for example, um, you know, it's not like we can test it out to any degree of certainty or yes or no, or like history, for example, you know, like a lot of people can have theories of history or political science, but in the hard sciences, like biology, math, uh, physics, there, there are right or wrong answers and things change sometimes a lot over the course of, um, a hundred years. So, um, yeah. What do you, what do you, what kinds of things do you think, um, you know, maybe in a hundred years or 250 years might be, might we be wrong about, and then some of the things like maybe even the big bang, I wrote here some stuff about the big bang and I've read, I think Max Tegmark, um, I've read some stuff on him, but I think he said something about like, it's, it's, it's a singularity, you know, we, we, you're, you're trying to, you had mentioned this too, make predictions about the future of the universe. And then you're also kind of reverse engineer our universe as we know it today and bring it the whole way back to a point of when it began because for some reason you know human beings there has to be a cause and an effect we're here today so the way that i think we as all human beings understand reality and uh some that a philosopher one of my favorites that wrote a lot on causality david hume you know he's always trying to like, what's the causality what's the what's the cause and effect so in terms of like future predictions we're trying to think, how's the universe going to end? And then we're also trying to get it down to that one point in time. So, um, yeah, I mean, what do you what do you think about some of the theories in science right now? Do you think there's a lot that you question that maybe in 100 years or 250 years, you know, we might be uh, uh, wrong about? I'm sure, there, I'm sure there's tons of stuff. Is there anything? I think you said that you kind of go against the, the consensus on the Big Bang. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Uh, that was I used to. Okay. I I think while something might ultimately replace it, it's probably going to at least contain the core of the classic Big Bang idea. Which so, is? Uh, just that the universe started from a really hot, dense initial point and has been expanding since then. It wasn't big and it wasn't a bang. It was kind of really small and a smooth cosmic expansion. So... It's is that, that's of, the inflation theory. I, I, there's an MIT you know, um, podcast so, uh, on it. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna look into it and take it. It's a lot of free courseware that I'm. I'm big into. So inflation is kind of a. There's some decent evidence for that. That would come before sort of the classic Big Bang theory, as I would. I would uh, use that term today. So so you have the the hypothetical beginning of the universe. Did it have a beginning? Certainly lowercase b beginning, maybe you should put it in quotes. Uh, and then there's the period of inflation, which there's some evidence for that. Um, and I think it's pretty decent evidence. But uh, And then we have sort of the classic Big Bang idea that picks up after some, some period after that, where the expansion was 
rather smooth and well described by um, some equations that were derived from and, Einstein. And so right now we're what thirteen point so, five billion years in the past. Is that is this is this the time period we're talking about right now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the standard number is closer to thirteen point eight or so, but yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I don't I don't think that the core of that idea is probably going to go away, and that's that's kind of what I think about a lot of things, especially in physics at least, where um, it's very rare to have a uh, just a, a earth shattering paradigm shift. I guess it it seems like the Galileo moment was sort of more one of those. I don't think it would have been as dramatic if the, if it didn't come at the height of the counter reformation. Uh, then, so I think the Catholic church kind of got themselves into a pickle then. Um, but, but outside of that, most physics things are kind of slow and more boring over time. Like the core of classical mechanics that I, or yeah, Newton kind of, was the father of that hasn't really changed in like three four hundred years it still works just fine to like launch satellites and whatnot um yeah i guess so, quantum physics is a lot uh, i guess a lot sharper but uh a lot of the newtonian classical mechanics well, is still sure. pretty effective I mean, we live in the classical worlds basically i mean of course there are quantum things going on all the time in our bodies and so on and so forth but but uh, at the same time, like uh, that, that 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 doesn't change the fact that classical mechanics still works really well to describe, you know, the forces that a car experiences when it's accelerating or that sort of thing. So, so I think I think you have these. We might at at the probably the, the only thing I feel really comfortable saying is that we might describe things differently. We might use different language to describe things. So, for example, you can describe. Um, you could describe some things classically that maybe we could use some sort of more quantum type of explanation in the future. Uh, but at the same time, it works just fine. It's worked for hundreds of years. Electromagnetism as well. It fails miserably uh, when you try to describe why is an atom stable, like how can an electron go around a proton? The theory of electromagnetism predicts that it, sh it, it should be impossible. But yet it works really well for all these other areas to describe how electricity flows through a wire. But it works, but that doesn't work if the wire is too small or too thin. So then now you need different equations and those theory, like that theory doesn't work, but it's it, in those cases, but it still works in the context which it was derived. And I think, so basically in a nutshell, take for example, uh, I don't think any of these major physical theories, they're going to fully go away. I don't think that's probably going to happen. Uh, just because they've been so successful in explaining a lot of specific experiments. Like if you think about the number of experiments that support the theory of electromagnetism, despite the fact that it's wrong, it doesn't work in certain cases. Uh, we're talking you know, hundreds and hundreds of observations. If you look at in the time of Galileo, um, how many observations did people have to describe the, uh, the, the, the sun going around the earth? It was like five, maybe 10. Uh, I think you could find a list on Wikipedia. So we're talking about 
We're talking about ideas that have been really well tested and supported by hundreds of observations compared to, you know, that, I mean, that was, that was kind of more, it, it was more like a, just a hypothesis that people just kind of, it, it worked good enough, uh, but it wasn't really well supported. Like a lot of these ideas are like the standard model of particle physics it's probably the most well-supported, one of the most well-supported models. Of, same with general relativity, but we know they're necessarily incomplete. You know, we know that general relativity doesn't work well for the small scale. That's where the realm of quantum mechanics comes in, and quantum field theory, and quantum electrodynamics, and those things make up the standard model of particle physics, um, and and more. So, you know, we know that these ideas, it's kind of the weird thing about science is that is that especially today, it's really difficult to come up with something new uh, compared to what it was like 500 years ago or 300 years ago, um, where, you know, you could have someone do some experiments with some ropes on a, on a boat uh, like Coulomb did. Uh, and he figured out some things about how certain types of basic friction work, you know, equations that I'll teach in a few weeks. And that, that was it. Like, you get that would that would be a joke today of course but i mean it's it's much more difficult to find something new or find some way that's something these well tested ideas that there's something wrong with them we know that they're incomplete we know that there's more out there and but it's just kind of boring to oh you know one of the most boring uh, headlines in a sense for science is that oh new study on a binary pulsar system confirms uh, you know uh, general relativity accurate to within, you know, one part in a billion or something like that's boring uh, in many ways, because in science, what you're trying to do is you're always trying to push on things that we don't yet know or things that we do know. Uh, but it's very difficult to do that. So I'm not sh I'm not sure that something new will necessarily entirely topple any existing idea. Um, I think that we might just limit existing ideas to uh, certain what I would call energy scales. So uh, like, for example, Newton's description of gravity works really well if you're not moving too fast and if gravity isn't too strong. So if the, if, if the, uh, like if the planet or like a black hole isn't too massive, then his equations work perfectly fine to describe uh, how things are going to move and how the physics works. But yet they break and under these conditions. So I think that would probably be more so what I would feel comfortable predicting about the future of physics, um, where it's that we just come up with maybe better language to describe how an electron interacts with a proton. So you it sounds like you're a little bit um, a little bit pessimistic in terms of um, maybe the future of science and physics. So let me just throw in some ideas here. What of the fallibility of, of human knowledge? Um, what of truth? Uh, and how do you know when you found truth? And how do you know that, uh, you know, you've discovered something that you would consider knowledge or wisdom? And maybe it's something different than, again, maybe just going back to like dogma, which we kind of started this conversation as. Uh, and then again, I want to go back to like, the singularity here, the big bang. I mean, is it a dead end? Is this just a term that we came up with, um, for a concept, uh, that we may, may never understand. 
Uh, and is the same true of dark matter? Is this just a, a term we came up with that we can't make any coherent sense out of? Um, you know, what all, what of all that, what of the fallibility of, you know, human knowledge and, um, you know, what's, what's the limitations of human knowledge? Is the universe even intelligible to human being? And, and what are the limitations that maybe we'll never understand? Uh, I think that's a good question in terms of humans being limited in, um, can we ever comprehend the entire universe? Certainly not. Right. Well, at the very least, we can't go there. I know that. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, we've discovered the universe is really huge. Uh, it would take forever to get to even the nearest star. It's just four light years away. So, um, I will never be able to travel at the speed of light, right? Because we're, we're particles, uh, we're, 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 we have mass, you know, some of us have a little more mass than others, but, uh, the speed of light that's reserved for massless particles, right? So even four years traveling at the speed of light, that's a long time, but human beings will never be able to travel at that speed, right? Uh, doesn't seem very likely. I think what maybe could be more promising is, the idea almost from like sci-fi of some kind of uh, wormhole. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's plausible. I mean, we know that space and time can be, can, can bend. It's very difficult to bend space uh, in particular. Are you uh, volunteering yourself to go on the first expedition of a wormhole? Is that what I'm hearing from you? I would, uh, I'd like to see some empirical tests before I go there. Uh, it, it doesn't seem super implausible, though, that we could, in theory, pinch space together so that you could bring two actual far distances, make them much closer. Um, that seems plausible. Uh, it does. It, I do feel fairly pessimistic in terms of us actually getting anywhere anytime soon, though, without some kind of technology, just because traveling through space could be a fairly dangerous thing um, uh, with lots of uh, lots of radiation out there. Turns out our sun helps protect stuff in the solar system from radiation from the outside, uh, but every so often shoots off a solar flare that you're going on a space mission and whoops, you got hit by a solar flare and now you're probably going to die. So, so here's my philosophical view here. Probably the worst way to explore space would be to send uh, human beings there. The way I see some of these missions to Mars and the moon, it's a propaganda, uh, you know, it's a propaganda or a, um, you know, it's a marketing ploy to, uh, you know, get more contributions for, um, you know, I think a lot of the, the, the military industrial complex. And this is just kind of like a public relations event. You're like, Oh great. You know, human beings are, are going to the moon again. What are we going there for? To see, you know, two clowns, uh, jump around in oversized suits. I mean, isn't it a lot, um, yeah. isn't it a lot better to send like probes and, you know, that kind of thing and satellites. I mean, is what's the advantage of sending human beings to the moon or Mars other than it's a really expensive public relations event. Well, I think the first thing you might note is there's a difference between NASA and SpaceX. So just 
Well, they, the SpaceX gets really big, um, really big government contracts, taxpayer subsidies. So, I mean, although it's although the private, uh, although the profits of SpaceX, and this is my wheelhouse on necessary illusions, although the um, profits of SpaceX are private, you know, Elon Musk is doing pretty well in his portfolio and whatnot. Uh, a lot of the, a lot of the financing, a lot of the subsidy, a lot of the research and development is is funded by John Q. Taxpayer, you and I. Yeah, so that's the secret or the challenge of funding. I think, well, science in general, let's just stick to physics since I know that more. So, um, like, who who is going to pay for, uh, like, without, without, all right, so Galileo, Who's going to pay him to sit there in a tower and make observations of uh, Jupiter and, you know, see, you know, him plotting out the moons that he put in Starry Messenger or something like that? Like Galileo, he made a lot of his money by being entertaining to rich people. So, you know, he's kind of yeah. like like a court philosopher who is like, hey, entertain us with your interesting ideas, Galileo. Well, that's Aristotle, my, one of my favorite philosophers. Yeah. I think he was uh, educating uh, – what was the uh, what was the, um, the Greek conqueror at the time? Um, I forget now. I'll have to look. Uh, but, yeah, I think that was – I mean I think that's a lot of – even I already mentioned uh, Descartes. Uh, I think he li- lived the the last four or five years of his life. Uh, he was the court philosopher for uh-huh. a queen in uh, I think Sweden, and that's when he died because it got really cold there in the winter. So I, that's always the question: is who's going to fund um, science? I definitely I'm not saying that science isn't important and it shouldn't be funded. What I'm saying is I think it's a public relations display to go to the moon. I think there's a lot better ways to. Um, study the universe than to send two human beings to again do a spacewalk in oversized suits. I mean, did that accomplish anything for science? Um, well, I think one interesting thing was that it helped us uh, pin down where the moon came from, or at least rule out some ideas. So uh, that's one of the challenging things. I I, I feel kind of on. Un- comfortable with uh people you know with these big pr stunts for science but at the same time when they do them it's kind of like we could learn a lot of things about the universe from them so take for example you know there was the recent oppenheimer movie i've seen Uh, it yeah i've seen it let's talk about it well i haven't seen the movie but Um, so I mean we can talk about that, but uh, at the at the very least, um, uh, think about our nuclear technology dropping this bomb, um, and one of the things we d- then did afterwards was we built a network to make sure that other people couldn't set off nuclear bombs. So we're building all this technology, and and so today I think there was a test that uh, North Korea did a number of years ago, and we knew exactly what kind of bomb it was, how big it was, and where they de- detonated it because we have all these you know like essentially seismographers or, or so- something that can detect all the waves, and then you triangulate that and figure out where it came from. Uh, now, as a result of all that 
that technology we used to monitor people testing nuclear weapons, we were able to figure out that earthquakes are concentrated along certain regions in the world. And that wasn't something we knew before. And that allowed us to realize that continents uh, are actually moving. And that led to really the establishment of plate tectonic theory that we kind of take for granted today. That A little bit of an accident, right? Is that, is that yeah. kind of what you're getting at? Exactly. I mean, there's kind of this weird relationship that science has with. We kind of have to go there. We don't, we're not really sure what we're going to figure out, but we got to go there and, and see, see, check it out, I guess, in person. Is that kind of what you're saying? Not necessarily. No, I don't think that's the greatest idea. Uh, but people are probably going to do it. And when they do these crazy things and probably waste money, uh, we can learn something from it. So. I don't know. I just feel like uh, I would I would try to make the best of that opportunity. I wouldn't go out of my way to advocate for such things uh, myself. But we have learned a lot of physics from people doing that or people trying to make crazy weapons and so on and so forth. Uh, I think I think who wrote a book about the history of warfare and physics? Maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson wrote a book about that recently, somewhat recently. Um, so, I mean, that's that's probably always going to be a thing, unfortunately, for so, us as humans. But I, I brought this up on another podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying I agree with it, but now we're kind of getting into politics as we talk about nuclear war, geopolitics for sure. One thing, first off, uh, the United States is a signer of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, they don't take that seriously. Uh, we have, uh, I think, over 5,000 nuclear weapons. We're not making any attempt to get rid of our nuclear arsenal, so we're completely... Um, hypocrites because we signed this nuclear proliferation treaty and again we're not taking it seriously uh, under no circumstances is the United States uh, ab abandoning its nuclear weapons program um, I think that uh, again I mean I've said this on other podcasts but um, yeah the United States is the only nation to drop a nuclear bomb my thought is so first off it was kind of um, invented as a weapon uh, you know because of the technology that they were um trying to advance nuclear weapons and weapons of mass destruction in Germany. Well, Germany was defeated at the time that the uh, nuclear bomb was dropped, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians and um, also killing maybe millions of people in the decades that followed. I think, and, and we were under no threat, uh, Japan was not threatening our borders. So I think it was, can you even me? even maybe looked at as aggression, uh, the United States at the time wanted a complete and total defeat of Japan. And the reason that we dropped the bomb was to say, we're not playing around. We're going to drop one, we're going to drop two, and we got plenty more. You know, that was, I think, literally the planners had mentioned that the goal was, we're not going to drop one, we're going to drop two and try to show them that, you know, we've got more. You know, and there's going to be more dead civilians if uh, you want to continue this war. My thought, though, is I think Truman is a war criminal um, for dropping that bomb, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians, maybe millions, and changing the world forever. We're, not, we're never going back to a pre-nuclear age. Now, I've said this on other podcasts. I just want to throw it out there, not necessarily saying I agree with it. But we, uh, we I say, people of the world have, have tried Nazi prison guards for their role in the Nazi industrialized killing um, in, the, in the Holocaust and that kind of stuff. 
What about the scientists' role in developing that nuclear bomb? They certainly knew what they were developing. They certainly knew um, the catastrophic damage that it could be, uh, it, it would cause. Uh, were they enabling, you know, this this type of, uh, you know, massive warfare on a scale never before seen before? Could they even be, you know, maybe considered war criminals for taking part, the scientists, uh, in, in development of this bomb? Um, you know, what, what say you to all that? This is, again, this is getting into politics, geopolitics, and nuclear war, which is kind of my wheelhouse. What do you think about this stuff? I know some of them might be a little bit out there. I don't disagree. But I just want to get the ideas out there, especially in here from a scientist's perspective. Yeah. So the first – I mean one of the things I think about at the sort of base level is um, most scientists are not necessarily, uh, let's say, evil, but they're just curious. So – and I th- I think sometimes that can – if there isn't – if they don't pause, like it, you're just trying, like you're just trying to figure out this problem. You're trying to solve it. You're trying to figure out this way that this world works. You want to figure out this this chain reaction, and and it's just for the sake of you almost don't even pause to think about it at all. I think during that process, and you're just just doing it for the sake of just the joy of learning. I think it. I might even to use that phrase. Like that's something I experienced. I think a lot of like pretty much everyone has uh, probably experienced the joy of learning something about the world or exploring some new idea or wow that's really interesting that's cool that it this is so so i think i think at the base level that's probably what's going on in many of their individual cases um can a nuclear weapon, can a nuclear bomb be used for good? I guess if you can harness nuclear energy, you know, you can use it. Um, you're not too far away, I guess, of weaponizing it, you know. So I guess you kind of have to harness nuclear energy to kind of get to that next step of the bomb. But, of course, nuclear energy, and maybe we can talk up and have that discussion too, nuclear energy as a form of uh, energy we could use in the world that maybe isn't perfect and has a lot of negative uh, side effects, certainly, but maybe with this environmental crisis, um, we could use nuclear energy in the short run while we scale up maybe other forms of renewable energy and green technologies and, and maybe slowly or hopefully as fast as possible actually uh, transition away from a fossil fuel-based um, energy grid. Yeah, that I'm not sure if it's a necessary step in nuclear reactors or, or how big that bridge is. I, I don't have enough expertise personally to address that particular question. Um, Let's go I, to the nuclear bomb. Can this type of, can it ever be used for good? Can you think of a scenario where a nuclear bomb could have been used for good or is it just a negative from the, from its inception as an idea? Um, well, I are you asking me about the trolley problem? So, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, I guess, I guess this is morality. I mean, the morality of the nuclear bomb. What say you? Um, I think the world would have been a lot better place if these scientists were, weren't working on it at all. Do you think that way? I think that hmm, I'm not sure. Um, 
Me either, but I, I, I think that's the right answer. It, it, would, it would be a better place today if they were never working on it. I would probably say better place today if it was never used against humans. 100%. Uh, 100%. But even the tests. So uh, I, I've, I I did some research, a little bit of research yeah. in Nevada. Or I'm sorry, not Nevada. It was New Mexico. Um, there were actually some people living there. Um, I guess Latino people or people with me- Mexican heritage. And, um, you know, they didn't get a say on the testing in their lands. So they dropped this bomb. I was reading someone um, on Twitter, so I didn't exactly fact check it. But she uh, seemed to yeah. check out from some of the stuff I read. That um, I guess in this little town that was like within whatever fifty miles of um, Ground Zero, uh, in this one woman's class, her mom, I think twenty-one females, eighteen of which got leukemia. Um, it, there was a storm the day that the bomb was dropped, uh, contaminating groundwater and um, killing livestock. Um, so even testing this nuclear weapon, the Oppenheimer film does not talk about any of that kind of stuff. You know, the people that was supposedly, uh, supposedly this is a desolate region of um, New Mexico where they were testing it. Not exactly. And uh, Oppenheimer and his crew, as this woman put it, um, they kind of shot the livestock and forced the people living there to work on the Manhattan Project, working with Berlillery, whatever is it, Berlillium or something like that. You know, you could, some sort of chemical that didn't sound good, but um, uh, anyways, chemical compound. Um, And then, um, you know, apparently, you know, Oppenheimer, she said, you know, again, not checking this out exactly, but reading, my reading of history sounds like this, you know, this kind of the way it was done. And the people, the natives living in that region, did not get um, hazmat suits and, and, and gear um, while the natives were forced to work on the project. And a lot of them died of, you know, diseases from exposure, you know, to some of these chemicals. So again, none of this stuff was kind of talked about in the Oppenheimer film. We're yeah. just supposed to expect it. Yeah. They just went to New Mexico, did a lot of testing. Everything was all good. And then they dropped it on unsuspecting Japanese people. But I think a lot more went into it than that. This was not exactly a desolate region in New Mexico. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think the United States, in theory, started as a democracy. There was no vote on should we be messing and, and messing around in nuclear weapons technology. You know what I mean? Like, uh, this was just kind of a this was kind of a arms and power play um, uh, with with uh, you know the, I guess the leadership of the U.S. government, uh, the, the people, whether it's in New Mexico or the people of the entire country, didn't have any say on whether or not we were going to develop this weapon of mass destruction. It just kind of happened, and it, it happened because the leaders at the top wanted it to happen. Yeah, I think that's the uh, well. One of the things I was thinking about while you were talking was the concept of utility just in philosophy in yeah. general. Yeah, sure. I, mean, I, think, I think that probably also the people working on it, once they kind of realized what they were doing, they were sold on that this is the this is the best possible route to bring about the most good. Um and I think in I don't think they wanted to bring about good. I think they wanted to stop evil, and I think the Nazis were the evils that they were trying to stop. I don't necessarily think they were trying to bring about good, though. I think they were trying to outweapon the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just mean good in the sense that no more Nazis is good. That's that's <laughs> right. No, not that. They, I'll not agree that, with that. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, there's a difference. I, I, I not the principle of like benevolence, where you genuinely want to do good for others. Like that's that's not what I mean here. So let's uh, talk about this. Okay, no more Nazis is good, but let's assume that every single person living in Germany at the time were not Nazis. So okay, we developed this bomb. We would have still, let's say, we dropped it before, uh, let's say, before Hitler committed suicide, and uh, you know, uh, Germany had fallen. You know. What about dropping a nuclear weapon on innocent German people and probably, you know, maybe concentration camps, um, innocent people that were, you know, in these, in, in these camps and jails and whatever, wherever the awful things that they were doing there. But what about, I mean, of course, there's gonna be a lot of collateral damage when you drop, drop a nuclear bomb. So what about the, what about the politics of that? I mean, let's say, let's say it, it, it was, uh, developed before, um, Germany had fallen. What about dropping it then? Would you have been in favor of it then, um, knowing what you know now about the nuclear bomb? Uh, I, th- I, ho- I wish it was never used, whether it was used in Japan or in Germany. I think it would have been a good thing that it was never used on people, even if uh, it was developed again before. Again, now we're into politics and trolley problems and morality and, and philosophy. But, I mean, what, what if it was developed before then? Do you think it would have been a positive to drop it to maybe stop World War II, at least in in Germany, or if you would have developed it, if you were Truman, if you were in the White House in 1944 or 45, I guess, um, before Nazi Germany had fallen or fell, uh, what, what do you think you would have done? If you had, the, if you had the final say, do we drop this or don't drop it? Well, one thing I was trying to do in my head just now is to try and understand the situation from his perspective. Uh, I mean, my initial thought was that no, I don't think you can do that. that I agree. It I doesn't. Agree. I, I mean, I would probably probably draw a little bit on another, uh, I guess, moral idea of. Um, the idea of gosh, whose is that? The idea of the veil of ignorance, where if you were in a society you and you don't know who you're going to end up as, you would want to set up society in in a way such that it's fair for everyone. Um, I know Thomas, or not Thomas? Was it Thomas Rawls? John Rawls wrote a lot about um, morality, philosophy, and how a society I mean, takes care of the most vulnerable. And I, I like his I like his politics and his philosophy. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it maybe could work perfectly in in every situation, but I mean, if I, if I'm an innocent German person, you know, and I'm kind of caught in the middle of this, do I think it's fair that you know some country destroys me and everyone that I know and care about for the of sake not. of? Yeah, so I mean, uh, so I I think. I I don't think that I would want to be in that position, and certainly considering the individual lives of, uh, you know, that you were describing from what you read about even the tests of the bomb and potential contamination and of radioactivity or whatnot. Um, Let, let's shift gears a little bit. Nuclear war, all that kind of stuff. It's not really fuzzy, feel good topics. Uh, obviously, I think I think it's good to discuss it a little bit. And I appreciate having an expert like you in physics to talk about it. But what about one thing that's very important to me? The climate crisis. We talked a little bit about nuclear energy. What about the climate crisis? What do you feel? I mean, I think it's an existential threat. Uh, I, I hope the tipping point is uh, far off in the future, but I don't think it is. Um, 
So what say you about the climate crisis that we're facing right now? And what about some uh, options to kind of save our planet? I think it's going to be a whole heck of a lot easier to save planet Earth, this beautiful planet we're living on right now, than it will be to terraform Mars. And we had mentioned um, SpaceX, Elon Musk, that kind of stuff. I think if the billionaires have a successful mission to Mars and terraform it and all that kind of stuff, I don't think they're taking all 8 billion of them of us with them. So what about the climate crisis, energy, renewable technology, green energy? What about all that kind of stuff and, and saving the planet? Well, I think the thing I think about the most is that, A, there are obviously a lot of really smart people working on the science side of the problem um, in terms of trying to develop new technologies, maybe some different ways to capture carbon, etc. The problem is that... Um, it's kind of like what I face when I try to teach like cosmology to people who have very strong beliefs otherwise. Um, I think that's probably going to be one of our bigger problems instead of dealing with the science or switching to nuclear energy or this or that. Like, I, I don't think that's as big of a problem as I, I think – I mean, you could go political, I guess, but um, just strong beliefs that people have for a number of reasons about climate change. Uh, I think maybe 20% of people don't even think it's a real thing. Another certain percentage don't think it's I, – I can't – Well, here's the consensus though. I think 96% of scientists, climate scientists think that it's happening and it's man-made. Um, yeah, some think it's worse than others. So we're talking about consensus here. I think the, the science is in and there's a consensus and it's clear it's happening. So what do we do about it? Right. So but that's what I'm saying. That's the problem because, I mean, the same thing is true with – the theory of evolution. I mean, there's no, like, at least the core of it. Sure, some of the individual mechanisms for how species change over time and and uh, other sorts of mechanisms that influence that process. Like, we, yeah, sure, we don't know all of those things, but at least the core of it is very well established that all species share a common ancestry, including humans. And so, I mean, you could find similar consensus numbers there as far as climate change, but yet that doesn't matter at all. Uh, because The way I see it, though, I don't think it matters at all as it relates to belief systems and evolution. If people don't want to believe in evolution, it doesn't really change my life. But my life, my yeah. children's life, and certainly future generations could be impacted um, as to whether or not we act on this existential threat um, yeah. right now. So, I mean, do you do you think that this, the threat is as existential as I see it? Do you think it's dire? Do you think that there's a tipping point, that uh, a point of no return? Um, I mean, maybe you're not a client or a climate expert, uh, but yeah. everything I've read is you know, Earth is getting hotter. Uh, every yeah. summer is hotter than the last, and it, it's oh, kind of time to act now, right? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I agree with that. And uh, I mean, I would, I would defer to the scientific consensus on the topic, which you described a, a, a bit of that just now. I guess what I'm saying is that um, I think the what I think we need to do or try to work on as a society is 
helping to convince people um i guess hmm. no so you, you are you are in a position of of great influence you know you're at a, uh, one of america's um higher ed institutions you do have a lot of influence certainly more than I have. I'm not a, a professor. I'm not at a higher ed institution. So you are some of the people maybe that are, are going to be charged with the task of convincing, yeah. um, especially young people, you know, people that um, maybe are still making their minds up about some of this stuff. You are in a position to kind of convince them of. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's related to what I was saying a little bit about evolution, which is just in terms of that whenever whenever scientists reach a consensus on something, that's something worth taking seriously. And, you know, they, they can, they can be mistaken. Of course, uh, the scientific consensus has been, I, I, I don't really want to say wrong before, but at the very least can be not have the whole picture. Um, and, but at the same time, that's where, uh, that's where, I encourage all my students to start learning about a topic because that was the mistake I made personally, which is I didn't start with the scientific consensus. I started with fringe ideas and fringe theories about these things. And it turns out that a lot of those people who have fringe ideas, they have no idea what they're talking about. I, I have a bunch of books on my shelf that I got when I started to teach cosmology because I wanted to teach – you know, I, I wanted to give students the real deal, you know, and not just, uh, you know, what the scientific consensus was. But the peop these people on my shelf, they get a lot of basic physics wrong and they have no idea what goes into the consensus model. So start there. Take it seriously. And if you really want to fight the scientific consensus, probably should go get a Ph.D. in the relevant field and start publishing your papers. So. I try to, that's where I try to bring students and it, it can be difficult because there can be belief structures or just a lot of people I teach grew up very conservative. And so as a result, they don't think climate change is a big deal or it's just these, you know, leftist alarmists or something like that. Just, uh, you know, trying to take away my burgers or something. <laughs> you know? so, trying, yeah, trying to take my gas guzzler, my SUV. I love this SUV. I don't want to, no one take this from me. So, so I have appreciated some people like, uh, there's Catherine Hayhoe. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her as a climate scientist, but, uh, she's an evangelical Christian who has been called all kinds of nasty things by other Christians <laughs> on the internet, but she does a great job at meeting people where they're at, um, and helping them to, I guess, I guess speak learning to speak their language, which is can be a challenging thing to do. So I've seen people uh, go play Fortnite, like scientists go play Fortnite and talk to kids on there about it, you know? That's or, awesome. Yeah. I know. So just that sort of thing. Um, so I – but it can be very difficult and not, you know, to – so I think if people can have some experience or practice – engaging people who think very differently or they're very hostile to certain ideas. Like, I think that could be really uh, important. And I've grown in that over the years personally. That's one of the things that is really important just for individuals in their sphere of influence to, at the very least, try to, you know, communicate with people in a way that they would relate to. Um, and, uh, I think the more people we have doing that in their own individual spheres, so sure, faith-based people, non-faith-based people, whatever, um, 
you know, in the in the Marxist sphere of people who follow, you know, socialist accounts or even conservative accounts, you know, to have people in those spaces, uh, you know, who can be voices for these sorts of things. I think that's really important to get a lot of individuals involved. I um, I do feel just to kind of hop a on board a more political thing that you might talk about. I, I sometimes feel a little uh, helpless in terms of being able to do anything myself um, about climate change. And I, I sometimes about anything think, though, like an individual can do not yeah. much unless you're in a position of power, uh, unless you're sure. a president or something like that. But generally an individual can do almost nothing unless you organize yeah. with others. The only way to change and make yeah, a fair. significant impact is to organize with others and that, and probably others with the same beliefs and goals and, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, with you, you know, you have to try to maybe convince people and, and more people to join with you. And that's a lot. What I talk about on this podcast is there's a lot yeah. of problems in the world today and to solve them individually, you're not going to get anywhere. But if, if you can join with other people, then all of a sudden uh, you can get stuff done. Fair enough. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, I wanted to shift gears a little bit. Let's just go back to your background in um, what got you into physics. Uh, what, what your influences? I had wrote down here, did you have some classes? Did you have some professors or teachers? You know, kind of what, what, what got that interest in physics and, and knowledge? And what, 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 where did that drive come from to, to take this career path? Yeah, just in a brief nutshell, I didn't. I didn't really know much about physics. Actually, I was much more interested in evolution and biology. I thought it was fascinating uh, as a high school student. The only reason I did physics was because it was the science with the hardest math. So I wanted to do that. So I took physics, I think, probably my sophomore year of high school. Um, and I didn't – I mean I liked it just because it had a lot of math in it, but it didn't really like stick out to me. Maybe because you don't learn the cool physics when you take like AP physics or whatever in high school. Um, you know, you're learning mechanics and electromagnetism, which is cool, but they're not black holes, you know. So so, so that was kind of that for physics, and I, I really took to uh, – thinking evolution was really cool because it was fascinating uh, and explained a lot about the world around us. Probably if I read a book on general relativity, it might have done the same thing, but I just didn't do that at that point in my life. So I go on and I just get a, start getting a degree in physics just because um, I didn't want to do probably engineering or any anything else that some people around me were doing. So um, – so that was that. And I didn't really come to like or really like physics as much until um, – so I go to grad school then. And I think it was there that I really started to uh, like physics because I was finally doing it myself. Like up until then, like before you're doing any kind of scientific research, you're just kind of resolving problems people have already done. Um, uh, or just, you know, like for example, deriving the rate that the moon, uh, or th that the, uh, let's see, the earth slows down every century 
like from the equations of general relativity or something. Interesting, but that's that's not that's something that people have done before. So I think when I finally started doing scientific research, my by myself i'm like this is cool and i had to really try and explain things and there wasn't any book that i could go to there wasn't any uh there were other papers written in the field that i could kind of reference as a basis but i still had to explain it and prove that i my explanation was correct or at least approximately correct in in terms of what i observed and so when i finally did it i think i came to really appreciate it myself and then teaching it to others um really transformed my probably my relationship with physics so that those two were but i it was kind of interesting i didn't really have much of a passion for it even though i was going through it and even started a phd program and yeah sure i went and worked at cern one summer that was kind of fun before that's the, the that's the what the particle yeah. collider yeah what's going yeah. on there what's what's going on there exactly uh, you mean besides the black holes to the extra dimensions, or I guess, yeah, I, I guess no. is that, is that that's that can't be true, right? Or is I guess the theory could be that that's no, happening. No, I've, I that was that was an old uh, I, I picked up a book in the library one time, and that's yeah. what they said was happening. So, yeah, that was uh, the fear, so. I guess, before it happened. Are they making big discoveries there? I mean, we're we keep banging particles off of each other and finding more particles, so let's get into the I guess before we go here, let's, before we go here, did you have a story you wanted yeah. to get to? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay, I want to get I want to get to this. I want to get real quantum physicsy or real physicsy for the rest of this podcast. So let's just go real physicsy. Uh, but let's let's start here. Uh, you had mentioned mathematics, and you know that was part of your reason for maybe going into physics. What is mathematics? Let's get philosophical. And, and why does it seem like it's the language that we use the most? Uh, is it a language even? You know, I guess it's not quite a language. It's a little bit different. Why, why is it such a popular tool? Why is it the tool that we use to understand the, the universe? Is, I've heard people say this before, maybe novice people that are into science. Is, is mathematics a universal language of the universe? I mean... Let's say their aliens exist if they do, you know, and maybe we can actually communicate with them. Do you think they're going to have similar mathematical formula uh, about the universe that we have? Is, it, is mathematics universal? I, I think that touches upon the – well, I, I, I might ask a similar question in terms of is, uh, is the theory of general relativity – universal as well you know i i think it's a similar sort of question um the answer i i would probably give is to our best guess yes but we couldn't be safe for sure are there Um, exceptions to some of these big theories can we find exceptions to some of these big theories um ones that you have knowledge of that you know maybe i've only heard in passing that kind of stuff but is there exceptions like this? This uh, this law applies except you know, and, and does that does that uh, does that challenge you know our understanding and our knowledge of the universe? I mean, I'm sure there's exceptions and weird things that happen all the time that we can't explain, right? Sure. Yeah, those are the most exciting things where our current models break or have gaps. That, I mean, I think that's probably the number one thing that's interesting. So take the beginning of the universe. Um, 
if you take the, the equations of general relativity and kind of run them backwards in time, they lead to this idea of a singularity, right? Um, however, the equations don't really work on really small scales. So we know this just empirically. They don't work to describe things on the quantum scale. Uh, you, they fail miserably to describe how these fundamental particles interact. I mean, we basically ignore gravity when we do all those calculations anyways because the particles are so light. But at the same time, general relativity and Newton's equations of gravity, they break when you get too close. The, you know, like Newton's inverse square law works until you get to about 60 or 70 microns, and then the law doesn't work anymore, and it doesn't follow the same mathematical pattern. So anyways, my point is that general relativity points to a singularity, but it doesn't work on the small scale. So that's an – so was there really a singularity at the beginning? We don't know. We don't know what happened at the beginning. We need some some way to unite – general relativity with quantum mechanics so i've heard some stuff on quantum gravity is that kind of in the same ballpark as unified field theory um it's related to that similar idea where you unite these different uh different physical theories into one you know ultimate theory of, of physics that was kind of like a holy grail that a lot of people uh somewhat naively and arrogantly proclaimed we would have by now so you can find plenty of nice quotes from physicists about that do we but, do you have hope that we'll ever get there or is that just not a realistic possibility for I science i almost don't want to in a sense because that means physics is done you know it's like go home you're done go become <laughs> engineers or something yeah so um but but at the same time, the the other possibility is that we might not ever have answers to certain questions. And that's that was something that I didn't like when I first kind of realized that. But it seems unclear at present. I, I don't want to say that we ever couldn't know, but it seems like there isn't any information we can learn about our universe before a certain point. Um, all so, of, all of, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, well, this is kind of getting into, is the universe intelligible? Uh, questions I've asked and I'm still trying to figure out, you know, as I philosophize about where we are and what is reality. The limitations of human knowledge, you know, what do we know? What What is possible? Uh, and then I also wanted to get to, like, what's science? So I, I like, as a philosopher, I like kind of getting these really basic terms and defining them. Uh, what is yeah. science? I think the way that I see science, it's a way to test reality. We can come up with theories, uh, but there needs to be some testing. I mean, I'm in healthcare, so you know, there's um, a lot of standards for new um, interventions and treatments and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, blind studies you have to compare and you know have different control groups and experimental groups. And I think that the way I see it, that's that's kind of science. It's 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 a framework that we use to test our theories to see if they hold up and to see um, if we're getting somewhere, I guess. Um, and then and, and generally, like um, we had mentioned or you had talked about, like, you know, things that change over hundreds of years or 500s of years, 500 years or more or whatever. Uh, and definitely our theories have changed some. But you said, you know, kind of over time, they it's slow, it's slow change. Um but definitely what I know and what I see is our tools that we have to experiment and to, to understand reality 
or a heck of a lot better. I mean, that CERN uh, particle collider, that's something that Galileo probably couldn't have thought up uh, hundreds of years ago, right? That would have been freaky, yeah. Is that, is that helping us? Is that helping us understand uh, the, the, the building blocks, the fundamental building blocks of the universe, or is it just giving us more sharp, sharper questions about it? Both, and I, I think it would be hard to deny that it's uh, giving us, you know, answers, but it seems like it always, I mean, that's one of the exciting things, I think, about science in general that it often leads to more questions uh, than sometimes sometimes answers. Uh, I often actually like to sometimes go to the list. Wikipedia has a decent list of list of unsolved problems in physics. Oh wow! Okay, yeah, I have to check this out. Yeah, so it's it's a fun a fun little thing to go to. They have it broken down by different disciplines. So um, I would uh, used to give students an assignment to go to the cosmology one and look at that and and try to say well what are what are scientists you know working hypotheses that they might have how do they plan to possibly test this idea and what do you think and so that's kind of a a fun thing i think to do um humor me define science what's what's science what what do you see it as? I mean, I I remember reading like, I guess Bacon gets credit for the scientific method. Um, yeah. I mean, how would you define science? What I mean, we've we've used this term dozens of times on this on this podcast today. I think I tried to get a give a brief description. Can you give a, a brief description of what science is to you? Yeah, I would generally start with it being a process for. Uh, acquiring and testing knowledge similar to like you were describing a little bit ago. Um, I I think so- sometimes science also gets the label of ideas that have passed some amount of testing. So there's I would say there, but but I wouldn't I wouldn't have like a dichotomy of this is science and that's not science. I think it's kind of more of a spectrum yeah. or a sliding scale of of this idea become science but it's still subject to change and i think that's one of the 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 strengths of science in general but it's also um it's also seen by opponents of science as a weakness so but i think it's really overall a way of 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 learning about the physical world i don't know how far beyond so you know i I'd probably keep the word physical world there for now. There doesn't seem to be a way to use science to test people's claims about supernatural things or things beyond the physical world. Um, However, if we, you know, but that might, that might change in the future, but it seems like for now, that's what science would be limited to testing those sorts of ideas and claims. Um, I think it would probably be important to separate it from philosophy or moral questions in general. I I don't think that – I think it could be a mistake when they get intertwined together. Uh, a lot of people reject scientific ideas because they think they have, they have a moral weight to them. So I see a lot of students like reject evolution because they think that 
Uh, it means that, oh, we humans are just animals and we can live however we want with no morals or anything like that, you know? So that's not part of the science of evolution. Like that's a whole separate topic. Uh, and so I, I would try to separate, make sure that people understand that that would be a separate sort of, uh, separate sort of topic or area of learning about the world and exploring it. Why do you think there is uh, a lot of like pushback uh, against science, anti-science rhetoric? Uh, I think I see. I saw something like there's more people that believe the flat Earth theory or whatever now than yeah. a couple thousand or a couple hundred years ago. Something along those lines. What do you think all this anti-science pushbacks about? Um. Well, that's a complicated question. Uh, some of it's definitely money and power related. Uh, you have uh, classic examples with um, like the tobacco lobby and their fake science institutes and all sorts of uh, so manufactured uh, doubt, misinformation, confuse the public. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly one aspect to that. Um, and that that's a great way to try to keep making money. Um, uh, so there's that, I think, uh, so, there so is, let's go to, let's, let's make it, let's make a more concrete example. You had mentioned big tobacco, but what about big oil? I mean, they have something to lose with this climate sure. crisis thing. Uh, they want us to keep, um, burning oil and they, and we want to, the companies want to keep, you know, digging up dinosaur bones. Uh, we have an oil based economy and have for hundreds of years. And a part of yeah. the reason for the United States foreign policy in the middle East to control the world's oil supply, or at least to, you know, um, ensure that the flow of money at least, you know, flows West to, you know, American and European based banks. So, yeah. um, yeah, I mean the misinformation, about climate and the climate existential crisis, I think that we're facing, and ninety six percent of scientists think, climate scientists think that that we're facing. But um, there's a lot of right wing, you know, think tanks, think tanks that want to sow doubt and get misinformation right. and propaganda out there. That you know, yeah. maybe it's happening, maybe it's not. But even if it is happening, yep. there's nothing we can do about it, which I reject. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um. um go ahead. Yeah, I would. Yeah, I was uh yeah, it was interesting. I was asked to review a book from uh the dean one time and it turns out it was uh it seemed fairly well written and researched, but looking at it I'm like this is really weird. Like what is this person saying? It seems like they're making true statements, but they're so misleading and out of context to paint a different picture and it turns out they're a rather famous uh uh, climate science sort of misinformation person. I don't remember who it yeah. was at this point, but yeah, it's well was... funded. There's a lot of well funded um, anti science, I guess, campaigns out there for yeah. whatever reason. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sure there's, there's a lot of different agendas. Let's go. Let's go physics. See, we got maybe 20 minutes, no more than that, and then we're going to be finished up for tonight. And I really appreciate uh, you're so generous with your time tonight. So not too often I get to bounce my uh, wacky ideas off of a real practicing. Physicist. Uh, so let's go physics. See, uh, the fate of the universe. Read some stuff here. I love universe documentaries, that kind of stuff. The big yeah. rip, the big crunch. I think it is another one. The big freeze. Uh, isn't isn't dark? Uh, is it dark energy that's pushing the universe apart, and eventually it's going to be cold and nothingness? Is I think it's at least one of the theories. Uh, 
and um, I guess it, it, galaxies, right? I, I guess the I guess um, the Milky Way and Andromeda will collide, but generally, I think galaxies are accelerating away from uh, one another, right? Isn't that what Hubble uh, predicted? Oh uh, yeah. So, well, it's just that um, if you think about imagine a bunch like in the room around you and suppose that it was just full of galaxies right uh if you were to if gravity was the only thing there when you're there let's say you're in the you're in the middle everywhere you look all those galaxies should be coming you know some of them should be coming towards you others will be moving towards something big over there something big over there and so on and so forth um, so that's what you would expect when you look at the universe. The weird thing is that that's not what we see. Whenever we look in the universe, there are a few things coming towards us, like the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah, we're going to collide with them in a few billion years or whatever. That's not going to be good uh, for us if we're all around, right? <laughs> uh, well, galaxies are mostly empty, so I'm not Just sure. Just like They're atoms, sh- right? Just like atoms. So do you see some similarities on the big and the small? Is that, aren't atoms mostly empty too, empty space? They are, yeah. Um, I'm, especially if you think about them like particles, but it's probably better to think about them like waves or, or like uh, – uh, so anyways, but I think that's a fair comparison. But yeah, there probably will be some uh, spectacular explosions in the sky as new stars are formed and so on and so forth. But um, – but the weird thing is, whenever we look all around us, things appear to be moving away from us. And the farther away something is, the faster it's moving away from us. So that's kind of the core sort of weird thing that Hubble, he didn't – he was the first who kind of gets credit for it. So there's Hubble's law that is a rather famous sort of observation that he make. He made uh, back in like 1927 or so. And the idea then was that uh, everything would just be carried away from us and then we would just eventually be left alone in the universe and then uh, eventually all the stars will die in our galaxy and that will be that. The universe will effectively suffer a heat death. So a lot of people didn't like the Big Bang idea because of the heat death. Uh, We thought that's not cool and it just sounds kind of – sad that the universe is going to die and so as a result but the evidence came in and it seemed to support that a bit more and then the weird thing is that in the late 90s we expected the universe to be slowing down in its expansion it's accelerating it continues to accelerate isn't that right we were expecting to find it slowing down, uh, but we found the exact opposite, that it was speeding up. And that was really surprising. Uh, we didn't – so the, the simplest way to explain why that's the case is that the like the vacuum of space just has a little bit of energy itself. And it turns out that if you so give a little – The cosmic background, what's it called? Like something something, the, something background? Uh, this was dark energy. Okay. Um, so it's just – it's just it was a term that Einstein added to the equa- his equations of general relativity originally because he realized that a static universe would be unstable. Everything should collapse into one point. So he put this term in there, and then when we learned to keep the universe from collapsing, like kind of like a repulsive pressure or type of thing. Um, but then when he learned the universe was expanding, he called that the biggest blunder of his career. But mm-hmm. then seventy years seventy years later, we added that term back in. 
for slightly different reasons, but it's kind of funny that he was sort of vindicated on his biggest blunder at the end of the day. So that's dark energy. It's um, And that differs from dark matter how? Yeah, they're very different things. Uh, so dark, well, if I w- want to be silly about it, I mean, dark energy is not dark. It's transparent. And it's an energy density, not an energy. So it's just like the energy of an empty box in space. Um, dark matter, on the other hand, it's also transparent, but it's actually matter. It behaves like regular matter does. So if you think protons and neutrons and that sort of thing. So it has mass and, you know, we can measure specific amounts of this stuff. Um, and there's a lot of it, right? I mean, there's more dark matter in the universe than there is the matter we're made up of, right? Yeah. Um, it's still possible that gravity works differently on big scales, and that's why, you know, dark matter wouldn't be in the category of something like an electron or something like that. You that's know? because we don't really understand understand it, though. I mean, what, do we know much yeah. about dark matter? We just know that it's not made of any known particles. So if it's made up of something, it's some undiscovered yet particle, maybe – Maybe axions or maybe uh, sterile neutrinos or uh, maybe there's a whole set of other particles that we don't even know about. But we don't have any empirical evidence of those yet. So, But at the very least, you know, it's, it's a good working hypothesis for all these different observations uh, that we see in the universe. Like galaxies are rotating too fast. Um, the cosmic microwave background doesn't quite turn out right. Um, the cosmic microwave background, that's what I had written down here. Um, oh. Space is not empty, right? I mean, there's there's energy even in what you would think is... Oh, yeah, that's not, yeah, that's not... Well, it's not quite related to the cosmic microwave background. It's a separate thing. But I, I could see why you'd say that just because, you know, everywhere we... It was originally there was this idea that space could have a temperature, um, that there was some sort of background temperature of space. And it turns out there actually is one. It's 2.7 Kelvin. Um, and no matter where we look, there's a small amount of radiation energy that exists in the universe. So that's that's a separate entity than the sort of the energy of empty space. But, it, you know, it would be there. Uh, so if you took a box of empty space, you would have the small amount of dark energy in it you would have the cosmic microwave background photons. And that's mostly what you would see in a box of empty space. In that's the supposedly what's left over from the Big Bang. Am I getting this right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what? So you talked about what existed before the Big Bang. I mean, empty space, it was filled up. I mean, what? you know what I mean? Like At some point, it's kind of incoherent to me in my understanding of, I guess, basic mechanics and that sort of stuff that sort of thing. I mean, what was occupying the space that our universe now fills? You know what I mean? Is that incoherent? Uh, Yeah. So it's kind of like the question, uh, if space is expanding, what's it expanding into? I feel like it's kind of related to that question. And most people would answer that by saying nothing, uh, that the universe is all that there is. Um, I think and I have so, a book over here, a, a universe yeah. created from nothing. Is that do – you th- do you think that's – that's not uh, possible, right? You mean is that Lawrence Krauss's book? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's not unreasonable. A universe from nothing, something like that, yeah. 
the argument is that the total energy of the universe is zero when you add up all of the positive energy from the massive stuff and other things like that. And then if you – some, we often think of gravity as having negative energy, and so when you add all that up, if you get zero, then in theory the universe came from no total energy. So I think that's the logic of it. It's not unreasonable, but that's – you know, I, I wouldn't say that the universe really came from nothing in that case. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Did the laws of physics exist before that? You know, that's not nothing, I guess. It kind of gets into a philosophical question of what yeah. nothing is. But, but I do think that that's, that's a fairly interesting idea that the total energy of the universe is actually zero. Um, but – what do you think? What do you think of the future of the universe? Will it live on forever? Is it is it finite? Does it have a beginning and an end? Well, that's where the, I mean, that's where the idea of a big rip comes into play. Because if dark energy is really what we think it is, which is just the background en energy of space itself, then I'm sorry, but that means the universe is going to start accelerating faster and faster. And one by one, if you were looking out in the night sky, we wouldn't be able to see galaxies anymore uh and you know so we would effectively actually end up really alone in the universe uh it would just be our little uh and then that would be that uh so what about quantum yeah. physics uh the, the the physics of the really oh, small sorry. go ahead sorry you want to you want to finish a point oh yeah so then if dark energy is something more interesting then that's where we could maybe end up with a big crunch and the universe wouldn't effectively die and maybe would be recreated. And I think that's a more exciting possibility, but the data doesn't seem to support that at present. Um, I kind of like the idea of a universe that exists infinitely, if you will, uh, instead of actually... Is that Einstein like too? Did, he, did Einstein like that kind of... Um... Infinite. I mean, that, that was kind of the default position that people had. There was no reason to think the universe had a beginning or end um, before the Big Bang model. Um, but yeah, so if so, if dark energy changes uh, over time or on big scales, there's still some wiggle room in our models for that to be a possibility. And if that's the case, then the universe won't keep accelerating. It might even turn around and start uh, collapsing then. And so instead of seeing everything blue shifted, we'll eventually see it red shifted. And then the universe will get destroyed eventually, but at least it will be together again. I don't know. <laughs> so I kind of like that idea more, but I mean, it seems like we're headed towards the big rip. Uh, there, there's, a, there's an idea, I forget what it's called, but you keep getting smaller and smaller. Like first we had... I don't know, you know, particles or, you know, atoms and then subparticles and now, we, you know, the quantum physics of it. I mean, can we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper like the quartz, quarks or whatever? I don't know anything about this stuff. I read some of this stuff. I can't comprehend it because I don't have you know, the kind of background and training that you do. Uh, but I do like the science, uh, the hard science and the physics stuff. Uh, is at some point, do we need to stop getting smaller and smaller? Because, I mean, um, you know, the the really big, you know, how galaxies and um, stars are created, I think, is is kind of in solar systems and all that stuff is on a giant scale is uh, is probably difficult for us to understand. And the same with the really, really small. So, um, 
yeah, is there is there any benefit to keep going smaller and smaller with the quantum physics stuff and the the particle accelerators and uh, are we making big um, are we making big gains here? You know what that's called? Where you keep going deeper and deeper and smaller and smaller. Like at some point, we have to. There might not be much more benefit to keep going smaller. You know what I mean? Uh. Yeah, I mean that's kind of a question for the frontiers of physics, I guess, uh, or the future of physics. We don't know what comes next. Um, what about like neutrinos, quarks, all that kind of stuff? Is that is that an area that you're well versed in that you'd like to speak to? Uh, what about neutrinos? I guess it's a I mean, uh, it's a ghost particle can travel through matter. That sounds kind of interesting to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, isn't it created? Is this one of these particles that's created? Uh, there's a lot of them, I guess, from my understanding in the universe. Is this one of the particles that are created in the in the particle accelerator? Well, I mean, the sun is a neutrino factory, basically. Uh, it, if you hold up your hand, I think several million pass through your hand every second when the sun's, you know. So, I mean, that's they're they're there. They could probably travel through a mile's worth of lead without ever hitting any atoms. So they don't interact very, very much with, uh, with things in the universe. So they're interesting. Um, you know, I think, uh, radioactive carbon produces a neutrino as well when it decays, but they don't really do much. And I think that's one of the problems with going smaller in physics from a practical standpoint, because, you know, anything that we see and find is going to be so small that uh, of, it, it, it can't interact with regular matter. Like it's not going to be able to interact with humans. So how is it going to help us? Um, I mean, we have found some technology that's helped us like PET scans use uh, positrons, for example, that's antimatter. You know, that's something that we can thank particle physics for uh, that help image and, you know, detect things in a medical sense. But outside of that, I don't know. I'm not sure what comes next. Um, what do you think about the benefit? Oh, go ahead. What do you think? So I, I think the idea of the universe was it encompasses everything. And now this, yeah. there's this multiverse theory. Sure. You know, so yeah. is that intelligible? I mean, the universe at one point, I think when they were, you know, coining this terminology was encompassed everything. And now maybe it's just a part of everything. Uh, so what about the multiverse theory and, and is this even uh, helpful in, in helping us study our reality? Because we're never getting out of this universe, right? Is that even That's possible? Great... It depends how you think about the multiverse. So that's that's might have to be a conversation for another time. Um, <laughs> Maybe the wormhole it... takes us out of our universe? Do you think that's a possibility? No one has any idea what these wormholes do, right? Probably not. Probably not, but uh, maybe. <laughs> I not in the way I was thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are three different types of multiverses that are predicted from dis different physical theories. One of them might already exist, and so, and that's the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. So that's kind of a fun topic. 
But the idea would be every time you make a decision, another universe is created. So you exist in multiple universes. There's many copies of you uh, where you make different decisions in each one. And there's a lot of room in Hilbert space. So in theory, uh, you can't interact with these other universes, but they might already be there. Um, so that's one possible multiverse. Uh, there Do you think there's others. a Dr. Matt, another Dr. Matt floating out there somewhere in, in time and space right now? Talking on a podcast, maybe? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Who has lots of intelligible things to say. Not sure I got there, but I'm working on it. <laughs> Dr. Matt, uh, we could probably go forever. I, I, this is fascinating. It was a great discussion tonight. Um, go ahead and plug whatever you want. Um, maybe uh, what you're doing, some projects you're working on, where people can find you, what you're teaching, um, anything. Go ahead. The stage is yours, my friend. Well, I don't have much to plug at the moment, but I am trying to write a paper on the return of the multiverse. I would like to see it uh, brought back into discussions about the idea of fine-tuning. So that's an interesting topic in itself where these there are these physical constants of our universe and they fall within narrow ranges. So I, I, I want to bring that back in um, – especially amongst the faith-based circles, because I feel like a lot of people are afraid of the multiverse and other scientific ideas like that. So I'm really trying to work to uh, get people excited about new science and discovering new things. And, um, and that's one of the routes that I'm taking to do that. Awesome, man. Uh, anything else to plug? Anything else to say? Uh, no, I look forward to more of your podcasts in the future, you know, keep asking good questions and reading, reading fun things. Yeah, man, maybe we'll do it again sometime. I really appreciate your time, Dr. Matt. It's been fun. You've enlightened uh, all of us tonight. So thanks so much and, uh, Godspeed <laughs> for lack of a better word, whatever. See you, man. Wow. Uh, kind of just blacked out there for a little bit. I uh, hope that went okay. I want to thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank my special guest, Matthew Povarnik, PhD. Dr. Matt, thank you for coming on to the podcast tonight to discuss faith and physics and our place in the universe. Again, I am your host, MC Squared. I'm out. <laughs>